This is News Talk 980 CKNW. 7.33 on this Sunday morning. Well, on Friday in a courtroom in court in New Westminster, uh, Raymond Casey found out what his parole eligibility would be. He received an automatic life sentence after he entered a guilty plea to the second-degree murder of 17-year-old Serena Vermeersh in Surrey. His parole eligibility set at 17 years, although both the judge and his defense lawyer um, made mention to the fact that he likely will not ever be released from prison. But when he was first released back in 2013, there were many questions about that and why somebody who was deemed such a high risk to reoffend would be put back into the community. Well, Robert Gordon is with us now. He's a professor of criminology at Simon Fraser University. Uh, Robert Gordon, great to have you on the show this morning. Thank you. Well, good morning, Jill. Thank you. Uh, what sticks out for you in this case? And and I know we can talk about the law and the fact that here's a, an individual who served his entire sentence. So there was nothing that could be done after he had served 22 years uh, for rape and kidnapping to keep him in uh, prison. Uh, but what stands out for you in this case and, and with this individual and how things have unfolded? Well, that, that was the the primary issue from from my point of view was that the the legislation, the criminal code provisions governing this clearly uh, could not cater for this particular situation, this particular individual. Um, a couple of interesting things about it uh, that uh, Casey himself uh, did not want to be released. Um, I'm not sure he, whether that was a genuine concern. You can't tell with a fellow like this, but um, he was concerned himself that he would reoffend. Uh, the parole board obviously felt the same was true, um, but nobody could um, nobody could keep him in the in prison once his sentence had been expired. So we need a mechanism uh, to be able to refer these kinds of uh, cases, and there aren't that many of them. Uh, back uh, in, to the court that uh, originally sentenced the fellow in order to consider whether or not he should have been designated a dangerous offender at the time that he was first sentenced. Uh, that's always hard to do, um, and, but we don't have that mechanism. <clears throat> um, uh, that is obviously some place where, or an area where um, the federal government needs to be involved, where uh, Ralph Goodale needs to take a look at this and review what happened and come up with some solutions. And it, it, it's not rocket science. I mean, if the person is is being released and saying, I'm going to reoffend. don't let me go. And the parole board is agreeing with him. And he's doing, he's done nothing um, to control his behavior inside the correctional facility. Uh, and indeed, has been a problem in the correctional facility. Then all of that would signal um, a person who is, who is, in fact, going to probably do what they said they would do. And I, I, I don't think it's it's fair to um, rely upon the police to supervise uh, these fellows when they are high risk and released. I mean, the, you'd have to trail him around the whole time. I think they do have a unit that will look at, at that, but they can't keep it up forever. Uh, no, and that was even one of the concerns from friends outside the courthouse, um, saying that even before this happened, he'd been seen in parks, he'd been seen places. And you're right, you can't expect, he wasn't being electronically monitored. You can't expect there are going to be officers five feet behind him everywhere he goes. Right. Um, and even if you're a person is electronically monitored, uh, you still have to have someone who can respond to a violation 
of the monitoring. Um, and that just simply is logistically uh, impossible. Uh, if you if you really think that you can control a person, you have to have a gendarme on every corner, as the saying goes, and it just simply um, wouldn't wouldn't work. So it has to go back um, to uh, the designation of the fellow as a dangerous offender. It has to be the original court, probably, that does it. Um, the at the time when he was sentenced, I guess Crown Council, who has responsibility for that. Um, didn't think that that was warranted. And they were basically giving the guy a chance. Um, and indeed, he, from, from what I understand, he stayed on the straight and narrow for a year, a uh, couple of violations along the way. But um, he he basically uh, showed that for a year he was, and more, he was able to, uh, he was able to live out in the community. Well, you know, that's... <laughs> That, that's the counterpoint. You know, everyone deserves a chance. Well, I'm not so sure that that necessarily um, works in this case. That chance costs Serena uh, her life. And uh, I think that's that's appalling. Uh, in this case, the, the judge referred to him uh, during the sentencing as uh, a merciless <laughs> man without a, a violent, <clears throat> merciless man without a conscience. Uh, when we talk about that, and, and when you mentioned this, that it, that it, the Crown would have, it would have been up to the Crown at the time of sentencing uh, 25 years ago, 24 years yeah. ago, uh, to apply to have him declared a dangerous offender, and, and not to, to second guess or to say that the Crown failed, but is that a flaw in the system in that I get that you can't when somebody has served their inci- entire sentence, you can't come back and say, oh, wait a minute, I think you're a dangerous offender, we don't want to let you go. But why yeah. isn't there a mechanism that five years into a sentence or ten years into a sentence, uh, there's a reevaluation, and you see if somebody is is showing remorse or is is rehabilitating, is doing anything, and if not, why why wouldn't we be able to look at it again then? Well, uh, you're asking the wrong person. I mean, <laughs> you really have to ask the federal um, minister of justice, uh, the minister for public safety, why uh, that is the case. But that that involves historical dredging. I don't think that's going to be very very helpful. But uh, clearly the mechanism that they rely upon is the parole board. Um, that limits the, and, and that's fine. Um, they do a great job, generally speaking. The parole board uh, studies the person's behavior inside, does risk assessments, those sorts of things, based upon uh, any contact that he's had in, in the prison, uh, particularly with uh, forensic psych- psychologists and psychiatrists. So um, there, there is a um, there is a structure in place to assess whether or not the person is able to uh, to live in the community, and it won't get released until the parole board ticks the box. However, um, here we had somebody who ran to the end of their uh, of their sentence, um, no mechanism to keeping him keep him in when probably what would have happened uh, uh, if there had been a dangerous offender. Um, designation is that he would have stayed inside um, for longer periods of time, subject to review from time to time, but nevertheless uh, would have stayed behind bars. Um, didn't happen in this case, very obviously. Uh, what they were relying on, though, in all fairness, was um, what's often referred to as the peace bond method, where you 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 apply for, or Crown applies for, or the police apply for a, a uh, a peace bond under Section 810 of the Criminal Code, um, which is used quite frequently and effectively 
um, for sex offenders, especially those who uh, have an interest in children, um, those sex offenders are then subject to uh, close supervision um, and, and on close observation. And you, if there's a violation of the bond, you're back in. Uh, and in this case, um, as I understand it, there was a peace bond in place that was acquired before he was released um, with conditions, uh, including reporting conditions and so on. But obviously that was not enough. And it's not enough, not because of the um, failure to supervise him, but just because of the impossibility of spending 24 hours a day, seven days a week, etc., uh, in his company. Um so it, it's there, there. There is there is the problem. Uh, there needs to be a legislative mechanism and a process for returning those kinds of offenders who weren't declared dangerous offenders at the outset back to the court to say yes. Now we've taken a look at this. Um, you're saying that you're dangerous to be released. The parole board is saying the same thing. The Correctional Service of Canada doesn't want to release you, and the Police are horrified by the prospect. There's a lot. There's a lot of weight there. So tell you what, uh, we'll de- we'll now declare you a dangerous offender, and you can you can stay um, you can stay inside until such time as we're uh, more comfortable with releasing you. I mean, at this point, he'll be it'll be 17 years at least, and that's just the application consideration. It doesn't mean that he uh, he will be released in 17. At that point, he'd be 67. Um, is that is that old enough to um, presume that he's not going to be uh, interested in committing any further offences? Well, uh, the short answer to that question is no. Um, and so you you you've got to try to uh, find a better mechanism for holding on to an individual like this. And as I say, they're, they're rarities. Holding on to him for a, a much longer period of time. Uh, until there can be, you know, careful scrutiny of of his of his um, uh, suitability for release, and then what what form of long term supervision uh, would be provided? Now that's that's the answer, I think. Vancouver's news, Vancouver's talk. This is News Talk nine eighty CKNW.